Welcome back to another episode of All My Relations. And as a heads up, this is part two of our series on Mauna Kea and the fight against the 30 meter telescope. So if you haven't listened to our part one episode, I would suggest stopping now and jumping off and listening to that before we continue our story. There's not much we need to say other than we're just going to launch back into where we left off at the end of the last episode. You'll continue to hear from Lanaquila Manguel, Jamaica Osario, and Noi Noi Wong Wilson. As a reminder, we interviewed Auntie Noe Noe in our mobile minivan studio as it was pouring rain. The sounds of the storm in the background will give you a feel for the climate the protectors experienced regularly on the Mauna. All my relations. We knew that they eventually they were going to come back because the Hawaii Supreme Court uh, re-granted their permits earlier this year. So we knew inevitably they'd be coming at some point. And we finally heard that the construction equipment was going to be coming up sometime in July. It actually began with, I think, what they did in preparation for the machines coming is actually they attacked our, our, our sacred shrines on the mountain. There were three altars or kuahu that were built during the stand in 2015. Um, and one of them was the Haleokukia Imauna, which was kind of the, the, the spiritual house um, that we that was erected right across the street from the visitor center, kind of just off on the side. Um, that was where our where we had a lot of strategic meetings, a lot of ceremony was held there, and it well, for a lot of us even through the past couple of years, we've always come back and we hold ceremony in that hale. Well, they early early in the morning, Department of Land Natural Resources, assisted by sheriffs and the and um, uh, HPD, came up early in the morning, in the dark of the morning, and they broke it down. And then the stone altars that were built up at the summit um, on the road that they have that they had cut in and also on one of the pads that they opened up for the construction, these two altars were put there. They went and they dismantled and destroyed all of the altars. That was their first move, is they attacked the altars of our people. In the state of Hawaii, the only people whose spiritual practices is technically um, has to have oversight by the state of Hawaii are Native Hawaiians. So we're, we've been dealing with a lot of the, that genocidal practices of, of removing our spiritual practice very he, on our here, on our own mountain, which we also, by that the Hawaii State Constitution, we have the right of um, unimpeded access for spiritual and religious practices and gathering rights on this mountain. So I always want to throw it out there too that we have constitutionally protected rights and yet in this whole movement we are the only ones who who are regulated Mm -hmm. on when we can access and what we can do when we actually have the protections. Not the university, not astronomy, not tourists, but yet in all of this we're always the ones that are locked out. I think it was around July 12th or so we decided that we would come and we're going to start setting up over here. Um, There was actually the first day of action um, where the we had actually, there was, I think, six individuals. There's a cattle guard right up above over here. Um, six individuals actually locked themselves to the cattle guard. Um, and we also that morning had a row of elders who set up down below here. July 15th, 2019, myself, Malia Hullaman, Noi Goodyear Ka'opua, Imai Kalani Winchester, Uncle Walter Riddy, Kaleko Ka'eo, Mahi'ai Dochin and Kamuela Park chained ourselves to the cattle guard and we stayed up there for 12 hours uh, and successfully blocked the construction equipment. That was a huge win for us. Um, 
when we set up the night before and we were told about this operation, Kalekoa told us, you know what, if we hold them till nine in the morning, I'm going to be happy. I was like, nine in the morning, we're going to go up at three, nine. Okay, I can do that. That's easy. Whatever. <laughs> nine in the morning passed. Like, I got to go to the bathroom. Like, Kalekoa, how long are we going to be up here? Um, <laughs> but the truth is, they didn't know how to remove us. Mm-hmm. And not only did they not know how to remove us, the paddy wagon that they brought to take us away and broke down on the road <laughs> right in front of the Pu'uhonua. Broke down. This huge Damn. paddy wagon breaks down. That's amazing. And That's what do, ancestral intervention right? right there. It was amazing. And I didn't. I heard all of this secondhand, right, because I'm chained to the cattle guard. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but what do our people ground. do? Do they, like, start yelling at the cops in the paddy wagon? Do they, like, start throwing rocks? No. They help the guys move the paddy wagon off the road so that they're safe. <laughs> Like, this is Kapu Aloha at its finest. Mm-hmm. What a lot of people don't know about that day is that the Kupuna line was already staged at the bottom of the road. The goal, and I can say this openly now because it's it's pretty clear that that was the goal at this point. But the strategy really was to have the cops have to deal with the, the Kupuna because we knew yeah. nobody's going to want to arrest Kupuna. Nobody wants to touch those guys. And the cops were smart. They didn't. The paddy wagon didn't work anyway, so they didn't have to go through the road. They just walked right around the kupuna. They're like, we're not dealing with you guys today. Came to us. Um, we were actually under arrest from about 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, they just couldn't, like, take us away. They didn't know how. And then at about 2 or 3 in the afternoon, a police officer came up and he said, uh, you know, we're worried about your safety. We're going to unarrest you guys. I didn't know that was a thing they could do, but we were placed <laughs> we're gonna under unarrest un- <laughs> and they promised that nothing else would be built. And so we came down and none of us would have removed ourselves if we thought they were going to build anything. So we come down. Honestly, I'm a little messed up emotionally, like surrounded by people. We've gone from that morning. We had maybe a hundred people. Now there are hundreds of people mm. on the mountain because they're seeing these. Mm. F- they shut down the roads for, for a certain point, but everyone who could get through got through. So there's all these people everywhere and mm. cameras and everything. And, you know, I'm kind of freaking out. So I go up to Pu'uhuru, which is actually like a mound up behind our camp. When I come down, Noi Goodyear, Ka'upu and I, we hiked up together. When we come down, there's like this big commotion on the road. And I'm like, what's going on? Our people are lined up. They're singing. They look really upset. They're linked arms. They're doing this really strong, soft blockade. So I walk over. And, you know, they're singing all our, like, battle cries. So I walk over. I'm like, what is happening? And someone points up. They're like, they're building a gate. So the Department of Transportation started building this huge gate on the Mauna Kea Access Road. And it was clear that the gate was there to keep us out, right? It's not there to keep the construction vehicles out. And that was a huge breach of trust. We had clear communication with law enforcement that nothing else would be built. Mm. Nothing would be built that day. And this was a really critical moment for the movement because... There were folks who were like, okay, well, let's just sit back and see what happens. And there were folks who were like, no, we're going to go rip that gate down with our bare hands. <laughs> and it was it was a critical moment because as I was coming down the pool, I could already see things. They could go one of two ways, right? And the most important thing is how are we going to get through this together? How are we going to do this as a lahui? Anyone who's been involved in a frontline movement like this knows that, God, the personal stuff is so hard. The maintaining of the relationships mm-hmm. is so hard because we're all so passionate and we're so in love with whatever it is we're protecting. And we're in love with each other. Um, basically, what ends up happening is the kupuna start 
negotiating with the police. And negotiating is a really strong word for what was happening at that point because the police really were just demanding things of us and not giving us anything in return. At one point, the kupuna give a list of demands to the police. And they say, these are the things we want. And it wasn't a long list, maybe five things on the list. The top of the list is we want one car a day that can go up to the summit to do protocol. And we got to remember that in the state of Hawaii, practicing our cultural and religious rights is a right written into our mm-hmm. constitution. Um, mm. So they were asking for their constitutional rights to be acknowledged and to be abided by. The police denied every single one of their requests. That is what started the Kupuna tent and the Kupuna line at the bottom of the Monica access road. The Kupuna said, okay, then we're not leaving. You guys can do whatever you want up there. You guys can do whatever you want in front of us, but we're not moving. We're not going anywhere. That Kupuna line was created out of necessity, out of a lack of respect shown to us by the law enforcement. And honestly, it was one of the stupidest things the state law enforcement could have done. Uh, because had they had they had allowed us to go up once a day, our side of the agreement is that we would con- we would basically let anyone except for construction vehicles up that mountain. But when they denied us that right, not only did it justify our escalation to taking over the road entirely, it also brought a lot of other people onto our side and seeing the injustice of the situation. So this is still Monday, July fifteenth. Tuesday, July 16th, our kupuna are there again. The cops show up and they're like, no, nah, we don't want to deal with these kupuna. They go away. We get notice at the end of Tuesday that they're not going to go away again, that the next time they come, they're going to arrest people. July 17th, Wednesday, 2019, hundreds of police from five or six different enforcement agencies arrive. Again, the kupuna, or the elders, sat in their chairs and the young people sat in front of us and we looked around and said... We can't all get arrested on the first day of this movement. I mean, that would be terrible if if everyone was arrested. We were told that if we stood off to the side of the road, that you wouldn't be arrested. They were only going to arrest those of us on the road. So the kupuna said to the young people, you need to get off of the road. We're going to save you for later. And you let the, the elders go first. And so they were quite uh, surprised, I think, by that announcement. They, they didn't want to. Poor Case, one of our other young leaders, is very talented on the microphone. <laughs> she had her microphone, and she sat in a speaker, and she just instructed everyone. She said, the Kupuna have made a decision. They've asked us all to get off of the road, move to the side, and let them come in and be arrested. So there were 24 of us, I think, sitting in our chairs at the time. And the police finally came. Um, They warned us and asked us to leave and we refused to leave. Um, It was very emotional, even at that point when the police were warning us. Um, Of course, they sent the Hawaiians to arrest us. They said to us, please don't do this. We don't want to, we don't want to arrest you. And we just said, you, you need to do what you need to do, but we're not leaving. We're sitting on the road. So they, they said, um, we'll be very gentle. We won't, um, we won't tie your hands behind your back. We'll use these zip ties, but we won't pull them tight. Um, we'll treat everybody with respect. And, but we really ask you to leave. And we said no. So they proceeded to arrest us. And then the young women stood up. So I was one of the first to be arrested, 
And then they, they allowed us to come back. And when I came back, they were still trying to arrest people. But the young women, there were, I would say, over 130 of them standing in three lines. Uh, three strong lines. They were, they were locking arms and, and chanting and singing softly. And um, the police were stymied, really, at that point. They weren't sure how to proceed. Um, there are lots of videos that show the action that day. Um, and, and then they ended up leaving. And so it was, it was kind of phenomenal what happened. It wasn't planned that way. I think the people who had, had sat down to, to talk strategy had a completely different idea about what was going to occur on that day. But when the Kupuna made the decision to sit on the road and not to leave, it just changed things. Mm -hmm. And it not only created a public furor that was unexpected in, in the reaction, um, but it sort of abruptly returned us back to the village. Mm -hmm. You know, when the elders were the ones who made the decision for the village. And we haven't operated that way. We've operated more in an American way for generations. And, um, and you know, our, our old systems um, aren't practiced anymore. But this was a return to an old system where the kupuna are, are not, not just... It's not a matter of revering them. It's a matter of um, listening to the experience and the wisdom to guide. This was the largest mobilization of law enforcement in the history of Hawaii. HPD, which is Hawaii Police Department, Maui, they flew in officers from Maui Police Department and Honolulu Police Department. They had Sheriff's Office here and they had National Guard. Uh, National Guard was only brought in as assistance for moving equipment. They were not to... They weren't directly in action with us. Um, but over, I want to say over three or 400 officers total. They had their command post down the road. This was the largest, like, militant action on behalf of the state, even larger than the overthrow of our kingdom. You know, this mobilization of, of all these law enforcement. The state of Hawaii has dropped over $15 million into law enforcement to protect a private corporate international entity coming onto these lands and has mobilized $15 million worth of tax-paying citizens' money to mobilize law enforcement against those taxpayers. The government kicked up $15 million out of God knows where because we never have money for our schools, we never have money for our roads, we never have money for health care or all these things, but yet $15 million to turn our police force into a private security force for an international corporation. The police were prepared for about a dozen kupuna to be arrested because that's who had committed to being arrested. But every time a kupuna was arrested, another elder sat down. Every single time. And this astounded the police. This astounded us. It took hours to remove them. And what a lot of people don't understand about this particular movement, what makes it different uh, from protecting other aina in Hawaii or other land on Turtle Island is that there's one road that goes up this mountain and it's a dangerous road. It's steep. It's not paved all the way up. Um, these construction vehicles have to go so slow in order to travel safely that they need to start making their way up the mountain 
at like one in the afternoon if they're going to go up at all. If they don't start at one in the afternoon, nobody will take it up. So there's all we have to do is stall them. This is one of like the really powerful parts about being situated in this particular place. So at that point in my mind, I'm like kind of traumatized that they're carrying away, hauling away Michael Puna, but also really proud that like I already know we've won this day. That the state can only make things worse for themselves. And I'm mostly just hoping that they don't start acting out in violence against us. I don't think ever in my life I've felt more terrified and more powerful. Because they've got everything. They've got their face shields. They've got batons that are dangling to the ground. They've got tear gas. They've got gas masks. They've got guns and tasers. They've got this thing called an LRAD, a long-range acoustic device, also known as a sound cannon. And one of the first things they do is they pull it out and they plop it right in front of us. Our people stood up in a massive way that day. And between the 15th when the cattle guard happened, we had like a couple hundred people. On the 16th in the morning, we had over a thousand people. After our women and kupuna stood up against the state of Hawaii and the TMT and took this line... We had upwards of 3,000 people daily in the middle of the week. Some days, like maybe up to five, 6,000 people up on that mountain from all over the Paiaina, all over our islands, because they saw something in those women and in those kupuna that they felt within themselves. They saw this intense need to protect our aina. Uh, and one of the women I was standing with, she wasn't in my line. Um, her name is Wayola, and she, um, she wrote, she wrote this beautiful post a day later and I kind of stole one of the lines and I put it in a poem. So I don't know if I'm saying it exactly how she wrote it, but it really was her masterpiece. She said uh, she was standing amongst hundreds of women she didn't know but was destined to love. And to me, it captured so fully what we were doing in this moment and in this movement that oftentimes we talk about how we're there to protect the mountain and yes, we're there because we love that mountain and we love that aina that she feeds and protects. But I also started to learn after my time on the Mona that like, now nah, this mountain's going to outlive us. This mountain is going to outlive every single one of these telescopes. Our aina, even as it's continuously degraded and molested by our human activity and our desecration, will live beyond us. The Mona gives us an opportunity to come back into our humanity as Hawaiians, to love and live on our aina the way that our kupuna did, and to love each other the way that we were always destined to love each other before all this bullshit, capitalism and colonialism and all this other crap got in the way and got in between us. The way we were supposed to love each other is that deep feeling of, of commitment to each other that we felt in those lines to the f- point where it became very clear to me within seconds that I wasn't just standing there to protect a mountain, but that I would give my life to protect any of the women next to me, most of whom I didn't even know their names. So to me, when we talk about, you know, all my relations, I came to Mauna Kea, I went to Mauna Kea with a very explicit purpose. It became very clear very quickly that there was something else our kupuna needed from us. And the way that our Lahui, our nation, our people, our community has come together as a real collective. For the first time in my lifetime, we have people with all kinds of different political views about sovereignty and about the future of Hawaii, all really committed to this one issue. Um, 
Mehana Kihoi, she says, the 30-meter telescope thought that they were going to erect a telescope, but really they awoke a nation. And in that, you know, we, we can talk about, we probably don't want to, but we could talk all about all this fancy feminist theory, right? About how the nation is supposed to like model, be modeled off the family. And that's why we need to all marry men and like have 2.5 children and like create that whole structure for capitalism to continue to work. When the 30 meter telescope through its violence and the state's violence against us, when they awoke our nation, our real true lahui, I, th- I really truly believe that it reawoke an old practice of pilina and aloha and relations with each other, because that is what our lahui requires. We know that it's been alarming to policymakers, um, to law enforcement, because it's not in their playbook, mm-hmm. right? They're not used to facing um, uh, groups of our nature that that are using Kapu Aloha as our our code of conduct, and um, and they don't know how to react to it. So it's been to our benefit, but hopefully it's also demonstrating to the world that there are ways for us to um, address even the most difficult challenges in our community um, through through the use of aloha, through, through patience, kindness, and um, diplomacy. We're not here to take on and, and we're not fighting the police force or everything. Most of all the police here are Hawaiians. Mm-hmm. And there's been a couple of times too. Like we had some discussions, and there were some heartbreaking moments where we had sons and daughters here looking at their fathers, mm-hmm. who are officers, or or vice versa. You've had we had some officers here um, whose fathers and mothers were the elders, mm-hmm. and so it's like we're not here to fight these officers right now. They are they're slaves. Right now, their their hands are tied in the sense of they are doing, they gotta maintain their jobs. And here in Hawaii, it's it's so expensive. It is it is like, uh, um, um, a matter of if you if you lose your job over here, you you could lose everything because how expensive it is up here. And that's because of gentrification, all these powers that be. So our even our police force, you know, on the side, you know, we hear from them too. And they, a lot of them as Kanaka, this is their mountain too. Yeah. But that you know that. American whip of you know economy and debt right that's what keeps everybody bounded so we put our hearts go out to these officers and so it's very different I know from what we saw like at Standing mm-hmm. Rock and other places too and that's why they, they do that so over here is the only thing I think they thought they could benefit by forcing the conflict and split of our community by bringing Hawaiians against Hawaiians because predominantly all Hawaiian officers that they bring up here mm. but they still they'll do their job but we maintain this important relationship and just trying to really always speak to the heart of even our opponents 
you know, that not just, you know, um, not just politics, not just the black and white, but really just speaking back to the human heart. That's right, too. Over here, too, it is, you know, as it's Kanaka Maoli, of course, we take the role. We take the, we take charge. We're responsible. Um, and so, but it's just not, even we say it's not solely a Hawaiian movement. Mm-hmm. In this day and age, anything that's environmental, that's a world's discussion. That's every human's right to fight to protect Aina, to protect environment. And so it was a lot of that, you know, oscillation, proud, profoundly full of sorrow, angry. You know, I remember at one point, there are all these cameras there and, you know, they're talking to Uncle Walter and I look over at Malia. I'm like, this is what it means to be a Hawaiian in uh, 2019. That in order to be Hawaiian, I have to chain myself to this thing and lay here all day. That our kupuna have been, were sitting out in the cold at three in the morning, mm-hmm. like freezing temperatures to be Hawaiian. Unfortunately, that kind of characterizes what it means to be indigenous right now. Is that oscillation of emotion from deep and profound pride of the things we can continue to do in the face of all this violence and violation. But we're not magicians. We don't escape without wounds. We don't escape without deep and profound trauma. I love Mauna Kea because I was born to love Mauna Kea, but I also love Mauna Kea because she shows me deeply how to love all my other Aina. Mm-hmm. She's like the perfect compass, especially in this last year and making decisions for myself and my family and and being interfacing in decisions for our Lahui. It's really easy. You ask yourself, is this in service to the Mona? Is this more important than the Mona? Mm-hmm. And then it's like clear direction. Everything opens up. The sky is clear, just like she pushed away a storm. I also think that it's important to recognize that even when the 30 meter telescope isn't built, And even if we are successful in removing every single telescope from Mauna Awakea, we still will have failed our movement if we don't get more people to develop an intimate relationship with that place. Mm. That's the point to me. It's that pilina. It's that relationship to that place, that love for that place. Because honestly, that's what makes us Hawaiian. That's that's what's going to return us to understanding how to practice relations with each other. Through the eyes of the state and judicial, we've lost. We have technically, as they say, we've exhausted all legal avenues in this because it's gone all the way up to Hawaii Supreme Court for this state land issue. It is also now a challenge to, and calling out the actual legal structure. Um, I mean, there's still, of course, the main underlining of all of this is that we are an illegally occupied nation where by U.S. law and standards, we are a... Uh, we're under a prolonged military occupation. Um, that's why we don't have like state laws. We have Hawaii revised statutes. They're actually in our natural, in our Hawaiian, our sovereign Hawaiian kingdom government is being run by foreigners and dedicating it to the United States of America. We don't have the oversight power of our own lands you know that uh, that we had you know the uniqueness between hawaii and like many other tribes and such too is that we uh we had 
international recognition as a sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. We were the very first non, non-European nation to be recognized amongst the family of nations. Um, our monarchy was, um, that was established, you know, it didn't last too long, barely 80 years, but in that time of the monarchy, we held treaties with many other nations around the world. All of this history was hidden away. It didn't even come back out and wasn't even really spoken of until like the, the, the 1970s with the Koho'olawe movement and other mm-hmm. things, then it started to come back. When I was in high school, I knew nothing about the Hawaiian Kingdom, nothing. Uh, what was taught in class was uh, the United States colonized Hawaii because we're uncivilized in order to teach us to be better at governing, right? Uh, missionaries came and basically took us over for the United States, took, prepped it for the United States to take us over. And then Hawaii was, became the 50th state and that's where we are. That, that's pretty much the basic storyline, right? This is Dr. Keanu Sai, a professor and expert on the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. He sat down with us and over three hours told us the entire story from early Hawaiian history to present day recognition fights. We took the audio from that conversation and made a whole bonus episode that will be available to our Patreon subscribers. And if you're not a subscriber, look him up on YouTube. The work he's doing and the story he's telling to the world is seriously fascinating. Here he is reading the words of President Cleveland. He draws the connections between this history and its legal implications in the ongoing occupation of Hawaii. The provisional government installed by the ambassador owes its existence to an armed invasion by the United States. And that's very specific coming from the president of the United States. And then he says that the military demonstration upon the soil of Honolulu by the U.S. military on January 16th was in and of itself an act of war. See, military now, act of war. These are carefully chosen words. You just don't use these words, you know, simplistically. This is the president on record telling the Congress as well as telling the international community with their ambassadors there, Hawaii has been occupied. And then he said that by an act of war, the government of a friendly and confiding people has been overthrown and that we must restore that government back to what it was before the U.S. troops landed on January 16th, 1893. Hmm. That does not speak to Hawaii being a colony. No. (laughs) That is very specific as a country. So Mauna Kea, it, it, it really has galvanized a lot of people around the world to begin to ask the right questions. People are now asking what led to this situation. And, and that's where people are becoming hungry. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the Supreme Court ruling, and this is really important because sometimes between states, uh, the what you call the precedents set by a one particular state's court system can influence others. So right now, with what we have faced now, back in 2015, when the Hawaii Supreme Court threw out their building permits, was based on a technicality of the permitting process. Mm-hmm. So they had to go back through a contested case. By law, when a project is proposed like this, it has to be able to go up for public scrutiny, basically, which we call a contested case hearing. And so the public can have say. And then the Department of Land and Natural Resources hearing uh, both sides are then supposed to then make their ruling on if they're going to support a project or not. Well, they did it backwards. The Department of Land and Natural Resources said, oh, no, we already approved this project. 
and people had to demand that they'd follow process, that, that they that they be heard. So then they did contested cases after, which put now the community at the disadvantage of now we're trying to change the minds of the Department of Natural Resources. So I mean, they already approved it. They already want it. And now we're in the state of having to get them to change their minds. That's not how it's supposed to be. So based on that technicality, they threw it out. And then they went and they created this total circus of a contested case hearing. They went and got a retired judge to come back in. They rented out a ballroom. Actually, it's an old bar in one of the hotels. It was about four or five months of cases or of, of hearings. And it's, yeah, everything, all the evidence, all these things that we brought up, it was just like, oh, just rubber stamp. And at the end, the judge said, oh, but, you know, yes, we see all the degradation, but, you know, I think the permit can go. And so they had to go back up to Supreme Court, which just earlier last year, they announced that they're, they are approving the process. Now, this is the key. The Hawaii Supreme Court ruled to grant their permit based on the concept of degradation of lands. One of the justices did not vote in favor, and his dissent is very important. As he wrote his dissent to this verdict, the danger is they have ruled based on a concept of degradation in a nutshell that they have acknowledged that through all the past, on past EISs and all this other history, that Mauna Kea has been severely impacted by astronomical construction projects. So they've acknowledged it. But now they're saying, but you know what? We see that the mountain has already been damaged to a point that we don't feel that one more project is going to make much of a difference. Another way to look at that is basically when they've acknowledged damage to the, the mountain, which is conservation, they, they are acknowledging crime was committed. It is a crime to damage the natural ecosystem within conservation lands. It's a crime. So the fact that they've acknowledged it, the Hawaii Supreme Court is rewarding this new company with the ability to create a crime because, you know, a lot of crime has already happened on this place. So go ahead and do another. As we've interpreted for us, it is the same as you have come and you have shot our grandmother 13 times already. And now they're saying, oh, that was really bad. But she's already been shot that many times. So one more shot with the bigger gun is not really going to make a difference. In this case, now looking at the, the mountain is conservation. The conservation lands are supposed to have the highest level of protections. The fact that now this corporation has been able to get in there and build because there's already been some mistakes or, some, or there's already been damage done sets a precedence that if you can get into a conservation zone at all and screw it up enough, basically it's going to be treated as if it's not conservation anymore. A lot of people think of it as a contradiction that that the University of Hawaii is at the like forefront of this violence, but of course the University of Hawaii is is a you know it's, it's an arm of the state in a lot of ways. If we look deep enough and like we open it enough, it it makes a lot of sense that they'd be kind of at the forefront of this particular kind of imperialism. At the same time, the University of Hawaii has, in my entire lifetime, been this always been this incredible site of resistance and activism. When Honani K. Trask was like in her prime, she was raising a generation of activists mm -hmm. uh, around her and talking openly and deeply about kind of these struggles. And my experience with social movement building in Hawaii has always been 
through the university because my father worked at the university. When I was a kid, my dad was a professor of Hawaiian studies, and then he was the director of the Center for Hawaiian Studies, and now he's the dean of the School of Hawaiian Knowledge at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And so I realize as a faculty now that my experience growing up was not the norm, but my experience growing up is that Hawaiian faculty or faculty at the university were activists. Like, mm. that's the job you got if you wanted to be an activist. <laughs> mm. This has been very different from my experience and a lot of the people I work with now. Although I'm also very lucky to just be surrounded by some of the most brilliant and committed aloha aina that you could encounter. You know, we mentioned Noi Goodyear Kaupua. Ilima Long is a graduate student in the department that I work in, but also a faculty member who supports Native Hawaiian students at, mm-hmm. in the overall university. You know, Andre Perez is a master's student in Hawaiian studies. These people at the forefront of our movement a lot of them honed a lot of their skills in the university, specifically fighting against the university, against mm. all sorts of kinds of issues. So as a Hawaiian, more than a faculty member, it makes sense to me that a part of my work is to hold accountable leadership, whatever the leadership is, whether it's the leadership of the university or the leadership of the fake state of Hawaii, or if Hawaii was a sovereign nation, then the leadership of the sovereign kingdom of Hawaii. And one of the problems with Hawaii today, or you can say the United States to a greater degree, or, you know, the world's powers, is they think of leadership in a very different way than I think my kupuna, my ancestors did. Mm. And the more I read our stories, the more I look into the political history of Hawaiians, the more I truly understand that leadership is a relationship and not a position. And our kupuna showed this time and time again. And so when our leaders don't maintain that pilina, those relations between them and us and between them and the land that they uh, are supposed to be leading on, then they can and should be removed. In terms of the university specifically and Mauna Awakea, it was really profound to me to see the numbers and the commitment of people from our university on the mountain. We were in a really powerful way, I think, both representative of a larger Lahui and the university. And it made it really powerful for us to put a specific kind of strategic pressure on the university, especially when the state started to ramp up its potential use of force. So we were in a really valuable position where we could write letters or kind of uh, communicate with our leadership at the University of Hawaii and be like, listen, this is a student safety issue. Our students are on that mountain. And if you do not stand up against proposed violence against the people who are standing guard on that mountain, you are not protecting your students. You're not protecting your graduate students. You're not protecting your faculty. This is a part of your responsibility as our leadership. And it didn't really, they never really did anything about that, but it was definitely like a a strategic way we could put pressure, I think, Mm -hmm. which was really important. Um, and it also just goes to show you, like, a lot of those students are, politi- uh, are poli-sci students, political science students. You know, you teach, these, you teach these young people about Hawaii's history. You tell them just a little bit of the truth. You offer them a few readings on, like, effective social movement theory. <laughs> um, and they're going to use it. Um, so either, you know, get out of the business of education or, like, follow these people you say are going to be the future leaders of Hawaii. They're not the future leaders of Hawaii. They're the only people leading Hawaii right now. And it's an honor to stand beside so many and behind so many of our students who are up on that mauna. We have never been against the science of astronomy. Mm -hmm. It is about a massive destructive 
a construction project in the middle of conservation land, regardless of what they were building. I don't know where science, especially when they say we're anti-science, when did astronomy become the definition of science? Right. <laughs> astronomy is one tiny field right. in the realm of what science is. And when you really look to what is the what is science, science is the observation of nature. Mm-hmm. So when you disregard the impacts to nature to observe something else, you're not being scientific. So when you really dig down to the depth even of our religion and spirituality, it's extremely scientific. Yeah. It's all based, all indigenous people, our practices are based on scientific observations. But, you know, sorry, it's not just a, <clears throat> a 10-year study. It's been a 2,000-year study. <laughs> so <clears throat> it's like, that's why when they, when they question that we're anti-science, it's like, well, let's see, our science has been running for thousands of years. And when, when the first Europeans showed up to our shores, they still spoke of a thriving community, rich and bountiful. And now we've been under European or Western standards of science for a little over 200 years. And look at the health of our environment. We are on the verge of extinction of multiple species, including our own. Mm-hmm. So how are we anti-science? We have to win this because if we have, if we feel that we're going to make any change to be able to help this planet support or sustain another generation of our species, this is the kind of stuff that needs to change. That generation of everything is, is worthy to sacrifice to our whims. We need to get rid of that whole way of thinking. Um, they need to shift and we need to, to get them out of power. For me, the field of astronomy needs to be more cognizant of their footprint, um, their footprint on the earth, that it's not just a, an esoteric goal to look beyond the universe, look at other universes or see the end of the galaxy, um, but they really need to know that in order to do that, they have to create these huge, huge systems. So buildings, not just one, but but system of buildings, outbuildings, roads, so that they can do this work. And, and in doing so, they leave a permanent imprint on the land and on their environment. And they also, um, oftentimes, as in, in the case of Mauna Kea and also in other areas, they select the highest point because it has a value to them. It happens to also have a value, a different kind of value, to the native peoples of that area and certainly to us here in Hawaii. Um, And so the conflict over the use of that particular piece of land has to be addressed in a more humane way. And they have to do it in a way that's ethical. And they have to listen to the to the voices of the community and the native peoples. And up till then, up till now, I don't I don't believe the the older generation of astronomers were trained that way. They weren't ever taught to look at those things. So the new generation of astronomers are definitely more sensitive to all of those things. They are looking at those issues, and and, and it cannot be. Um, astronomy for the the sake of of their esoteric goals. They have to know how those goals impact planet Earth. One point four billion dollars back to taking care of this planet would be great. Why are we spending so much time and resources to look further away, as opposed to looking right here and taking care of this planet first? 
taking care of each other first. We got to challenge the system that starts that. Don't don't just keep adding to it. So you know, it's still an education for our own people, our own communities, uh, of what where the actual source of our issues lie, and how to act, or better ways to deal with it, opposed to just giving up more. As we keep saying, we're we're facing a permanent loss of places like this for temporary gain. Half of our own families are the ones who built all the big hotels down there that now block us off from going to our own beaches. You know, we don't get to all these big, fancy, um, gated communities for the mega rich are are built by our people. And now we ain't ever going to live on there. And we got to keep, they keep building more and more because they got to make more money because all of our tax rates, our, 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 our property taxes have skyrocketed because of more of the big wealthy houses coming up around us. So, I mean... This movement triggers all of that. Mm-hmm. It triggers all that conversations because that's the big thing that the state keeps throwing out. Oh, but all the money and they're going to come and help to bring into our economy, which is bullshit. This is the first telescope. They say, well, they're going to be paying rent. Like all the other telescopes don't pay rent. They pay $1 a year. And it's just like a trade-off. There's hardly any money that's actually generated within the Hawaii economy. They get some from taxes of money passes through, but... It doesn't stay local at all. And some of their students, well, you know, we, we move a lot of our best scientists here and their families and they're going to spend money. It's like, our family can spend money too. <laughs> so, what? so we have to make more room for more outsiders to come in? That's a, no, that's not, that's non-sustainable. Um, and so at the same time, so many of our people have to leave because we get priced out of our own ancestral homelands. Mm. Uh, it, that's huge. There are more Native Hawaiians living abroad than there are in Hawaii yeah. because we just can't afford it. That's right. Now, the joke is Las Vegas is the ninth island, but it's a sad reality. Yeah, there's actually almost more Hawaiians just in Las Vegas than on Hawaii Island. because It's just, we can't afford it. It's so ridiculous over here. And then anything that help, that, that moves towards self-sustainability, God, do they, the state and the county just crack down on it so hard that no business can get off the ground. But if you're a multi-million dollar corporation come in, whoop, they just lay out a red carpet for you. So reminding ourselves to pull ourselves out of the Western perspective that it's bad, that like, you know, there's supposed to be nature down here and we are the superior. That's someone else's perspective, not indigenous people's. We are one and the same. And in fact, if anything, for a lot of us, we're lesser. We're lesser than Aina. So it's our part, our existence is to help keep all these things going. And moving forward into the future, it's about how do we continue to learn? How do we continue to gather what we need from environment, sustain environment, help the environment to thrive while still continuing to evolve as a people? We're all 21st century human beings here. But we understand that there's just so many other ways of, of living that we don't have to be so detrimental to our home. Ask me about the Mauna, and I will tell you about 30 Kanaka huddled shivering in an empty parking lot, praying the Lahui would answer the call. I will tell you about two nights spent caught sleeping directly under a sky scattered in stars, an air so clear, every inhale is medicine. How every morning we woke to a Lahui Kanaka growing as if we were watching Maui fish us one by one from the sea. Ask me about the Mauna and I will tell you how on the third morning I watched this 30 became a hundred, then a hundred became a thousand, then a thousand became us all, each and every one of our kupuna standing beside us. Ask me and I will tell you the mo'olalo of eight kanaka chain to a cattle grate 
and the Kokua who sat beside us. How we were never alone in the malu of the Mona. How no one is ever alone in the malu of our Mona. Ask me, and I will recount their names. All 38. Each kupuna who showed us mo'opuna exactly how to stand. How I wept and wept and wept as I quietly held their names in my chest. Ask me, and I will sing the song of our Manawahine, linked arms and unafraid, who stood in the face of a promise of sound cannons and mace. Ask me, and I will tell you I have been transformed here. But I won't have the words to quite explain. I will say, I don't know exactly who I will be when this ends. I don't know exactly who we will be when this ends. But at the very least, I will know that this Aina did everything it could to feed me. That will be enough to keep me standing. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to All My Relations. Thank you, Jamaica, for that beautiful poem. And to Auntie Nui Nui and Lanakila for joining us on this episode. Also, Dr. Keanu Sai. To that note, we want to thank our Patreon subscribers for continuing to uplift and inspire and encourage us and all those people who donated music and made artwork and our whole team of AMR folks that make this possible. Thank you for continuing to be on this journey with us. Would you like to add to this conversation? We are taking comments or questions and adding them to the third part of the series and we welcome your input. Do you support TMT? Did you go to the Mauna? We want to hear from you. Go to allmyrelationspodcast.com Click on the contact tab, scroll down to the bottom, and record your message. Maybe we'll play it on the next episode. Can't wait to connect with you and hopefully a brighter 2021. We love you.